Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. All right, we're live for another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, um, Tyran Laws. Uh, we were supposed to have his co-author with us today, but he unfortunately he couldn't make it. He was sick. So we want to keep him in prayer, Rashawn Ahmad. Um, welcome, Tyran. How are you doing today? Hey, Miss Lisa. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be on here. And did I pronounce your name right? Uh, Tyron. 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 Okay. Tyron. I'm sorry. You told me and I still did it wrong. I'm so sorry. Tyron. That's it, right? Yes. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Tyron. I'm so sorry. Um, (laughs) But today we want to talk about your book um, that you co-authored with uh, Rasan, which is The Roundtable. And I found out about you through a Crew, crew ministry, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. I was at the leadership conference um, recently, and they were like, "You got to get connected um, to uh, this guy who who wrote a book on this. His name is uh, Tyrant." So um, yeah. that's how we got connected. So I'm excited to um, talk to you about the book, and I think it's a great resource. And I'm excited because so many people are looking for resources on these topics. And written a book on it. And I think it'll be extremely helpful to those who are followers of G3 and those who may not be, who just might stumble upon this podcast. So for those who don't know who you are, just give them a little bit of background. Sure. I'm a pastor here in Chicago on the South side. Um, uh, Father and, uh, and, and and a husband, obviously. Um, but, um, uh, grew up in California, went to school and, uh, at Sanford University, got a degree in religion, went into Wheaton, got a master's and on my way back to Wheaton for a PhD. And, um, yeah, and just recently, recently, uh, wrote this book and just, uh, yeah, that's a little bit, a little bit of who I am. <laughs> so give Most us that. Huh? I'm sorry, go ahead. Give us an overview of the round table. Sure. Well, um, essentially what we do is that we take um, about six areas that are starting to affect the black church experience um, in regards to millennials defecting from the church. And um, and so they, we much of this came out of um, just conversations with people online, people at the barber shop. Um, a lot of it was you know, online conversations and Facebook groups and Twitter groups and all this different stuff. And uh, uh, and we started to find it, we started to realize that it was this major, uh, this major problem and people are starting to say the same thing. So, so essentially with this book, um, we take, we deal with black atheism, we deal with Hebrew Israelite, we deal with Black Eastern mysticism. We deal with the religions of Kemet. We deal with also what we call the pluralistic Christian. Um, and we write a, a short book of about 124 pages. Each chapter um, takes those ideas and personifies them. 
puts them in story form. And then at the end of each chapter, we give kind of some analyst, some um, um, kind, of, kind of a short analyst of, uh, of um, how you can kind of debunk it, how you can also minister to people who, be, who believe these things, and you know, how you can kind of critically critically think through it as a, as a Christian. Mm-hmm. So. so today we want to talk about three of those um, that is that are in your book, and I think will be really helpful because these are things that people are always contacting us about. We see the Facebook groups. We see the response. Um, the first one we've already talked about, a little bit, but I think we want to just dive into this Deuteronomy passage in particular that I think is the crux of the belief in in Hebrew Israelite um, that kind of that kind of belief system. Um, and the passage is uh, Deuteronomy twenty eight verse sixty eight, and I'm going to read it um, in the KJV because that's one of the uh, that's one of the uh, the translations that they hold dear. And the Lord shall bring right. Egypt again with ships by the way where whereof I spake unto thee thou shalt see it no more again and there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondsmen and bondswomen and no man shall buy you and that's again that's Deuteronomy 28 68 and the ship and being sold it um they use that passage to basically draw a parallel between those of us who are Africans that were came to America through the transatlantic slave trade being the true um, Hebrew people. Can you kind of um, talk about that passage a little bit? Yeah, that's like the, that is a bedrock scripture. Um, the whole problem with this is that it is all about loose parallels. It's all about taking superficial parallels and then saying, see, hey, that's, that's about us, um, which, is a, which is a problem um in of itself but it's a problem that we fall prey to because that's how we used to that's how people for the most part are used to reading scripture um we very seldomly ask the question what did it mean to them to the original audience uh for those who have a for those of us who hold a high view of scripture and um um, that the authority is in what god has intended not necessarily what we draw from it but what god has intended um, so we don't always ask ourselves the question, well, what did it mean for them before we ask, what does it mean for us to try to draw a parallel? The problem with this is that, um, um, first of all, it doesn't say America, it says Egypt. And so what you, in, what you end up having to do then, right, is that you end up have to give an allegorical meaning for Egypt. And now you have to, and now you, and now you have to, um, justify well why 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 does Egypt necessarily translate into America mm-hmm. and what and what you're gonna do then is you're gonna try to say well look at it it's describing us is this is describing it, it but it's only but if you read Deuteronomy 68 I mean 20 Deuteronomy 28 there's a whole bunch of things that just doesn't line up and so um um, and so you end up have to do is you have to kind of have this general perspective of uh, or general analysis. You, in other words, you end up not paying attention to all the details. If you paid attention mm-hmm. to all the details of Deuteronomy 28, there's a lot of stuff that says, okay, well, wait a minute. Well, if that's the case, 
then why doesn't this line up? But I'll tell you something even bigger. There's, there's, a, there's a huge hole in the theology there because um, now then, if because see here, this is what Deuteronomy 28 is about. Um, Deuteronomy 28 and 27 is all about covenant blessings and covenant curses. Covenant blessings, in the context of a covenant relationship, blessings are the rewards for being faithful in a um, with God. When they're faithful, God is going to do things, and He'll say, "I'll bless you in the city, and I'll bless you when you come, and when you bless you when you go." And these are the rewards for obedience. The curses component, which is part of what we're reading in Deuteronomy 28, is the result of disobedience um, to God. So when 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 the people of God, um, when Israel is um, disobedient, he says these are some things that are going to happen. So if we take that seriously, then here's the hole in their theology. That would mean then that that God is to blame for slavery in America in 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 part, but mostly that we are we were enslaved because of our disobedience to God. So then God ended up punishing us and sending us to America to be slaves for 400 years because of our disobedience. That's a very problematic theology. And so um, um, so it, it all falls short. It all falls apart. And, to, and then the thing is this, what they say is this, um, everybody knows for the most part, one of the biggest tribes in Israel was Judah. And so what they say then is all black people um, from, from the tribe of Judah. Well, that's problematic. Yes, Jews were black. We, we, we understand we are the Jews, your first century Jews, even even further back. We understand that these are um, they look more look a lot more like you and I than they do Charles and Charles and Heston. We, we understand that. But there's something there's something um, fundamentally wrong with that to say it's one thing to say that you uh, that a lot of uh, that your uh, your original uh, Jews of that time were, were people uh, with the pigmentation. Of you and I, that's one thing. It's another thing to say that every person, every black person, is a Jew. That's a whole, that's a whole new, different concept. So, yeah, yeah. And I love the way you 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 broke that down about Ju uh, Deuteronomy twenty eight being this is part of the curses. So if you would take that position, you would essentially make yourself complicit in the slavery that you're trying to blame uh, people that you're essentially saying. At the end, God is going to give you authority over um, and right. make not only yourself complicit, but you make God complicit. Um, and Then you right. end up kind of messing yourself up in your claim. Um, if you look at it from a big picture, proper context kind of component. And I think that's really important because when you don't know the context, when you don't know how to properly interpret scripture, things like this will happen. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, these, the cherry picking without knowing proper context. And I think that's one of the, um, something that you talked about before we went live that I feel like so important, knowing how to properly interpret scripture and, okay. And that's important because in a context in a day where we read our verse of the day and we read, you know, we pick, we go to the concordance and pick out scriptures on faith and try to piece things together that don't necessarily fit. We can, right. we can 
well-meaning Christians that are trying to quote unquote study the Bible can end up with some of these crazy beliefs as well because they're not properly interpreting scripture and looking at the whole picture and not just zooming in on one scripture trying to get a prescription to their particular problem. Um, so I think that's, uh, I love that point you drew out because it's like, come on guys, if you look at it, you're kind of the blunt. If you take that approach, you're, the, you're a blame to, uh, yeah. to blame for your own, <laughs> own, for our own, uh, uh, slavery. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you, and, and that's the thing. Um, and so what, what they end up doing is, um, so you want to create a framework, but you're not even being, you're not even holding on to the integrity of the very framework that you're lifting up. Mm-hmm. So, and that, and that's, and that's, and that's what I found out to be one of the biggest tools that we have in this apologetic fight is, um, really, really digging into, okay, well, let's look at your framework. And oftentimes we don't even have to try to defend what we believe. We can just call into question, Hey. This is your framework. Your framework doesn't make sense, right? We're, we're so used to, we're so used to, we're so used to like have to defend and I get it. I'm trying to defend what we believe, but oftentimes what other people don't believe doesn't, it, it is just as irrational as you, as they are projecting that our beliefs are. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So putting the burden of proof back on them instead exactly. of. Exactly. And I think that's important. What other areas or whatever other passages have you seen to be problematic? Uh, because, you know, there's the whole thing of we had recently one uh, uh, one that was in the Hebrew Israelite kind of frame. I don't know if he completely bought into the whole thing, um, but he okay. was suggesting that, you know, he was like, well, I bet your pastor eats pork and my, my father's my <laughs> pastor. So I know that he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know, our whole family does grew up on it. Um, but essentially, what he's trying to say is that, you know, we're not holding on to the law, and um, but there's so many things, and I don't. Jesus came because we couldn't keep the law, and to suggest that, you know, to pick out pork is one thing, but there's some other things in there uh, that I know that we probably, you know, many in the Hebrew Israelite train of thought aren't necessarily keeping. So how can we engage them and still be respectful? Cause I want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be, um, you know, just kind of caricature, caricature, sure, give sure. them like a caricature and, you know, kind of, just shove off what are their thoughts because some of them do have legitimate claims. Uh, but how can we Very much so. in um in gentleness and respect kind of take them through um those passages in the law to say, hey, are we really keeping this um thing you're talking about? Yeah. And whenever I have this conversation with Christians, um, um it's, it's such a kind of multifaceted one. So maybe I can start here. I think one of the reasons why um, they are so successful, for the lack of better terms, of of creating so much suspicion, um, particularly in the black church, is because we have a very anemic understanding of the Old Testament. Um, um, in my master's program, Old Testament was was a much was a major part of my my focus and um, was even considering doing PhD in the Old Testament. 
Uh, but um, we, we have to be careful. Um, well, let me say this. Most of the time, they know the Old Testament more than we, better than we do. Um, and we have to be, on one end, we have to be careful with two extremes. Um, obviously, there is another covenant that the Lord has brought in, that Christ has brought in, and we need to consider how that how that has extended or even developed our understanding of the Old Testament. That's number one. Number two, though, we need to also we don't want to be Marcians, right? You know, um, in, in early church history, um, you, you had a, one of the people, one of the persons that was around for the church fathers. Um, called Marcion, and his idea was we just ought to just throw away the Old Testament. It's not relevant for Christians at all. Um, Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, right? So um, this sometimes we have this kind of Marcionist perspective that says um, the Old Testament ain't 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 no good to us. So we just all New Testament. That that's not the that's not the right perspective. If that's the case. Then um, won't you just burn the Old Testament and we just um, walk away with our with, with our New Testament, and that's also why I have a problem with the those Bibles that are just, you know, we got Psalms and you got the New Testament kind of thing. So that that's that component. Now to answer now to answer your question, um, we need to understand how um, in, in in valuing the Old Testament, Paul says in Romans seven that the old the law is holy, right? So we need to we need to value the Old Testament. We just need to be able to contextualize it. So um, and Paul begins to give us some reason how we can contextualize it. Um, when it comes to those particular laws, we need to understand some laws um, by its very nature, uh, what are called casuistic laws, um, that by its very nature were um, just for circumstances, right? So if you have a law, if you have a law, um, many of your laws, it says, uh, if you have an ox, and your ox falls into um, a hole, and it was your neighbor was the one that had the ox. You know, well, guess what? That tells you by in of itself that that's a circumstantial law. Because what happens if I don't have an ox, right? So, um, so some of the laws were never intended to be followed for all times. Interestingly, food laws is one of those. Food laws are one of those laws that were never intended to be um, followed for all times and all situations because the food laws were connected to the temple. So um, the, the idea is essentially this, is that people eat whatever their gods eat. Now, of course, Israel, God doesn't eat, right? And other gods, people, they don't, they don't really eat either because they're idol gods. Um, but the idea is, well, uh, what's good for sacrifice is what's good for consumption. That's how the, the Israelites' food laws are, are are based upon. And so, guess what? When you don't no longer have a sacrifice, even Jews, there's no Jew that is uh, of Caucasian or even Af or African descent. There's no Jew, period, today that are that are offering up bulls and lamb for sacrifices. So why? Because the temple complex is no is no longer um, in order. And so obviously. When the temple is no longer in order and that whole complex is uh, system is no longer in order, well, then, yes, naturally, some of those laws that are connected to that is going to go. But there are other laws um, um, that they're not in any way tied 
to a particular circumstance. And these are a, a lot of the laws that we're still that we're still lifting up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like your the moral uh, component, uh, like sexuality and uh, lying and gossip and murder, you know, those are disconnected from uh, temple or tabernacle uh, before the temple was in existence. So that's right. Uh, it's I think it's important. I think a healthy framework and a healthy diet for any of pastors that are listening, I think would be to really spend time on helping people understand the Old Testament and light of the new, because a lot of people that I talk to don't understand um, how to interpret it. And which leads to, like you're saying, all kinds of um, interesting things you could pull from there. You can you could create belief systems um, based on a misinterpretation. And sometimes, I know in the evangelical world context, there's a heavy focus on the Pauline epistles. That while we're training them, there it's easy to develop systematic theology through Paul's letters. But however. Right it leaves people kind of, like you said, weak on the Old Testament. And then when you deal with cults like Hebrew Israelites, people aren't able to necessarily interact with them because they don't really have a strong diet or know the Old Testament well. Right. Um, if I could, yeah, right. If I could, and real quickly, if I can just give a um, kind of a framework of how Jews understood a lot of the laws, um, not all laws, not all of the Old Testament from a Jewish perspective held the same weight either. So you had mitzvot. Mitzvot are commandments. Um and obviously if God is telling us to do something that that's that that's uh um that holds that's that's that holds a lot of weight. But a lot of you also have what is called halakhic laws. These are people work for halak is to walk around your everyday walking around laws. And your everyday walking around laws is based off your everyday walking around circumstance. And so you have a lot of if-then um, laws, and so those are often you have a lot of those in Leviticus, and so uh, you have um, what is called hok, hok are customs, and these are laws, these are laws, these are social customs that have acquired the force of a law. So as an example, let's say, let's say that Fourth of July was a holy day. It's not. It's an, it's no Independence Day, but let's say it's a holy day, and the Jews go into exile and they want to still hold this no holy day, but they can't, they've got their calendar mixed up. And some people can't realize if it's, was it the third or was it the fourth? And so what they do then is that they'll do things like, um, well, we're going to make sure to, to, to celebrate it. We're going to celebrate on both days. And so now what has happened now, where it used to be just a one day celebration is now two days. Um, and it, and it arose out of a social custom. And so you've got all those different things. And so sometimes what we're trying to do is trying to hold laws that were never intended for to be held sometimes. They're, they're hope. Um, uh, minhag, minhag is kind of a, uh, is a, is another thing that's a um, kind of a social custom kind of thing. But um, so you, you have all these different stuff, and we just need to have a better understanding of how the Old Testament is constructed, so that we can better combat it, in, or just at least at minimum, just understand it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's important for I think the next topic we want to talk about, which is okay. commits. 
um, what is the overall framework of their belief of cometicism? Um, their belief. I know you talked about what uh, at the crux is comparative religion. Um, right. So, what is for our audience who are watching? What can you give a general overview of of their their train of thought? Yeah. So, if I can just ground their premise, I ground it in this. It's um, um, it, it's it's part of the Pan Africanism uh, kind of movement. This whole Black empowerment kind of thing. And black empowerment doesn't necessarily have to be a religious thing. It can be kind of social, but it has oftentimes religious components of it. Um, one of them is the, the religion of Kemet. And so it's a compensation piece. It, it is the idea that um, obviously African blacks and African-Americans, but blacks all over the world have been oppressed. Um, and so we're going to create a framework that will empower us. Well, in this case, we don't quote unquote have to create one because we already have one. It's the religions of Egypt, which is the which is where the whole Kemetic religions are founded in. And the idea is where all of these religions are getting these major religions of the world are getting all this respect, you know, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism. But what if I can, but what if I told you that all of them got their ideas from the religions of Kemet? And, and so it's this whole, um, the idea, we, we talk about this in our book, but it's this whole stolen legacy component. Uh, and let me tell you why that's so effective for the African-American um, person who's wrestling with this. We know, um, just looking at our history here in America, that when we start talking about culture and ideas and various things being stolen from us, we know that there is a lot of historical fact in that, right? So we are already sensitive to this idea. We can talk about, we can talk about uh, inventions that African-Americans have, have put forth that could be stolen and ideas with no repercussions. So because that is already a sensitive thing in our communities, historically, when, you, when somebody comes and say, well, Hey, it ain't just that that was stolen. It was also religion that was been stolen. And so what they would do then is they'll try to um, go back into um, studies of Horus and Osiris and some of your Egyptian gods. And then they will um, say, see, look at these. Look at this. Christians have been talking about this. Christians have been talking about this. They're using this kind of terminology. They're using their uh, Egypt came, Egypt was around 3,000 years before that. So, where do you think they got that from? Where they got it from, Egypt. And they oftentimes, well, any kind of logical proof that it was stolen or that was borrowed, there's nothing, there's none of that. Usually, what happened is, usually, we always see its parallels. You see this? Christianity say this. Egypt say this. Well, um, one came, one came before, and so obviously they stole it from there. That sounds like a, uh, a it sounds like a good premise. Um, I, I, I can talk about that in a minute, but I do want to give you some time to respond. I know because I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk a lot. <laughs> so, no, you can go ahead and talk about that. Okay, so let me tell you why that's. Let me tell you why that's a that's just irrational. 
It's irrational because um, there's two major premises that essentially that the religions of uh, Kimmon is going to use in their argumentation. The first one is this. If you have two religions, religion A and religion B, and religion A comes before religion B, then whatever religion, um, uh, and, and religion A comes before religion B, and they're using the same symbols and same terminology, then obviously has borrowed from religion A. That's the premise. Here's a problem with that. The, the first problem with that is that it assumes that a symbol or a terminology can only be used um, one way, that it only can have one meaning. But even if, even if they say it does have the same meaning, that doesn't mean borrowing. It may just mean that people thought about the same, they thought about the world in the same terminology. Let me give you an example. So if Horus is referred to as the light of the world, and uh, which is problematic, whatever, but let's just say um, they, they try to say that, but a lot of stuff, when you actually read there, um, you, know, you go to pyramid texts and you read different stuff, they're, they're really just drawing superficial um, parallels. But, but here's the thing. Let's say, that's for the sake of argument, let's say Horus is referred to as the light of the world. And then Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. And Horus was, was around, the, the religions around Horus has been around 3,000 before Jesus. Well, doesn't that make sense that they borrowed it? Well, no, listen, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is this. Um, first of all, when it says that Horus is the light of the world, we have to ask ourselves, um, are they, when, when Egyptians' religion use it and when Christians use it, are they using the same meaning? Because Horus, um, Egyptians actually believe that Horus was the sun god, right? So you, you, may, you actually literally think that he made his light of the world. But that's not what we talk about when we say that Jesus is the light of the world. We're not talking about that when I look at the sun, that that's my God, right? Number two, though, is this, though. It's also a metaphor. And can people use metaphors the same way? Sure. So if light was a metaphor for guidance, and for, um, um, you know, essentially that's what light would have been. If light was a, a metaphor for guidance and understanding, and we understand that Jesus is the source of our guidance, would it make sense that we would call him the light of the world? Right? So it, it's just kind of, it's foolish. It's foolish. The other thing is this, though, is that, um, that a symbol can only mean one thing. So, um, I wish I can, uh, if I had a, a is it, um, in English, we have a, a symbol that we use. Whenever you, remember when you, if you're writing a, a word and you omitted a word, if somebody was editing your, like your document and you omitted the word, you forgot to write it, then what you would do, oftentimes what the person that was editing could do is they can write like a, um, a symbol. It looks like an upside down B, right? Mm -hmm. You write that and then you put the omitted word on top of that. Mm -hmm. Well, watch this. I don't, I don't know what that symbol is called in English, but I do know what that symbol is called in Hebrew and, and from Hebrew linguistics. In Hebrew linguistics, that symbol is called an atnach. And the atnach is a, um, it's essentially like a colon in English. It serves, and when you're reading the Hebrew Bible, you'll see that at the end of, at the bottom of um, sometimes. And it's just a break in a sentence. It, it serves like a colon, it, like English would. 
it would be so asinine for us to think that just because the Hebrew civilization came around 6,000 years before English did, that when we use that word, that upside down B, that somehow we are trying to borrow um, meaning of that. No, you can use, you can have two different societies who use the same symbol and use that symbol in totally different ways. And it doesn't in any way mean that I'm trying to borrow. It just means that, hey, we have similar symbols. So, so this, so this is, this is part of the problem. And, and, and the thing is that it's all, um, all, let me give you one more example. Um, so they always say that the idea of Trinity, the idea of Christian Trinity is borrowed from religion of Kemet. So what, they, what they'll do is they'll show you a picture or a statue of Horus, Osiris, uh, and um, Isis, right? And, and so uh, Osiris is the father, uh, Horus is the son, Isis is the, the wife, and so these are these three gods, and so that's the original Trinity. But, but when you look at how Egyptians interpret that, they interpret it in light of family relations, right? So this is a problem. That's, yes, so you've got these um, three quote-unquote gods, and that's the idea of Trinity. Um, and Christianity is supposed to be involved that, from that. But that's, that's not what we mean when we, we talk about the Trinity. First of all, if just a picture of three um, uh, of, of family of gods, you know, a father, son, and, and a father, son, and mother. If that's if that's the idea of, of a trinity, then any picture of of a family of three should then um should suffice. That's not what we mean by a trinity. So um um one God, three three different persons. But my, my whole point is this: is that we oftentimes are just drawn away by superficial parallels and most of the time when you actually go back and read those texts that they're supposed to be coming from um you'll find out it's totally different from what we um say we believe and so what they do is they take what we believe and they take our terminology and then they project it back onto um the religions of kemet to say see um, it's, it's a superficial parallel. It's a parallel. And it's like, well, no, that's not what we're talking about at all. With that, so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's so so helpful. Um, for the sake of time, we don't want to stay there. We want to move sure. to yeah, sure. Eastern mysticism. Um, <laughs> yeah, I told you I can talk now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. This is great. Okay. So, okay. Um, for those who are watching, what is? Um, can you just kind of give an overview? of the Eastern mysticism yeah. um, component and how that's playing in, in um, black communities today. Yeah. So first we got to start the conversation. What is mysticism? Mysticism, um, um, for the most part, in a very simplistic understanding, it's religious paranormal activity. So um, with that being said, there's a lot of mysticism in the Bible. A vision. It's considered mysticism. Um, theophonic appearances, like the, the burning bush, that will be considered mysticism. It's this idea of having uh, receiving information through para religious paranormal activity. Okay, that's mysticism. So our contention is not with mysticism in of itself, because the Bible is filled with mysticism. As soon as you, a person gets a vision, that's considered mysticism. 
The problem is Eastern mysticism. And by Eastern mysticism, we're talking about um, mysticism that are that is centered around some of your Eastern religions, like Hinduism, Buddhism, and some of the religions in the Asiatic um, regions. And and it's not that's not necessarily the problem in of itself. The problem is when we highlight those Eastern mystic concepts and then try to project them onto scripture in a way that was never intended for scripture. And it goes back to the authority of God's word again. Um, and so what happens is we get these parallels again, these superficial parallels. And so where we start to see things, uh, where we start to make, um, we, we come across these ideas and we look at something that we think resembles that in scripture and, and that begins to shape our thought of how to understand that scripture instead of scripture itself. Just real quickly, just give you a little small example. Uh, this is a real small one, but like for example, um, um, I can't even think of it. But you, uh, the 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 in, in Hinduism and in Buddhism, uh, reincarnation, right? You have this kind of this reincarnation concept. Um, most of us don't know that the idea of um, Oh man, I can't even think of it. It slipped my mind. But anyway, uh, um, oh my goodness, can't think of it. Well, okay, um, but but we'll, we'll take we'll take ideas, we we'll take concepts, and um, we'll try to project it back on scripture and say, hey, this is um, this is Eastern mysticism. East, uh, the Eastern mysticism way of understanding is the best way of understanding it. The problem is that we don't often have to know that it's Eastern mysticism that we're that we're one example, I'll try to go back to the other one, but the one that I, that I do, uh, that I can remember, is that one of the tenets of Eastern mysticism is this idea that um, one can alter one's reality by, by their will. That by this idea, you can alter your environment and your circumstances through the, through the right um, form of meditation and the right form of thinking, we can alter our reality. Um, and um, and sometimes we take those ideas and those ideas become the very way that we think about faith. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. Is that, is that, is that, is, is faith a force that we can control God with? It, it's, it's faith, it's like, it's faith. And so what ends up happening is we end up having faith in faith and not faith in God. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so we end up, in, and we don't know that that's Eastern mysticism. We're, we, we, um, and so we start talking about that. So what we do is we talk about some of the things like the word of faith movement, um, which people, most of people don't know, has a lot of its foundation in um, um, Eastern mysticism. And, um, and, we, and we take that and we say, now, this is how it's being grown in the church without us even knowing it. And we say, now, listen, let's examine this. Is this biblical or is this Eastern mysticism? And we begin to raise up some examples and some core beliefs of Eastern mysticism so that the reader can be able to um, weigh in and say, yeah, okay, you know what? That's not exactly what the word of God meant by that, but we have interpreted that in light of Eastern mysticism. So, mm -hmm. I think it's, I think uh, that's the parallel that most people identify with how you drew it in, in some of the uh, word of faith uh, kind of type churches, this whole idea of it. See, speak, speaking it and declaring your reality. Right, right. Um, 
uh, fortunately, what we uh, unfortunately, I think many um, Pentecostal churches have adopted that um, kind of thing because there's the whole proverb of life and death is in the the tongue, and so this yeah. idea of declaring and creating your reality. Um, if I speak it, it will manifest. Is, right. is there? Um, you know, I think there's some ways that we could pray, and if it's in God's will, that He mm-hmm. will manifest it. But this whole idea of I can create my reality based on right. my words and my faith alone is dangerous right. because what happens when that doesn't happen? And I always right. tell people look at the lives of people who are telling you that. Are their lives shaped by what right. they're declaring? Is, right. is chaos still happening in their lives? Or, you know, right. if you went last time and they told you that uh, you were going to be debt free by 30 days from now, did that happen? Like, if it didn't happen, then maybe it's not really any concrete um, evidence to this. Um, so I think, you know, we have in, in some cases in churches adopted that. Um, not only in black churches, there's some white Pentecostal churches that have are actually where they're they had that and then black Pentecostal churches adopted it from them. Um we right. got it started there. So, you know, sometimes people try to say that this era started in the black community. No, it started right. in right. white uh, Pentecostal circles. So um and seeped over. So um right. Yeah. And, and the challenge and the challenge with a lot of those, just like the same thing we've been talking about, is that we don't actually it, it's so easily, it's so easy to just when we have a framework that that gives us some um inclination of what this should mean mm-hmm. to just say, Oh, well, I was looking um, I was looking for an understanding of this, and Eastern mysticism provides it. The thing mm-hmm. is we don't know that we're getting it from Eastern mysticism though. Mm-hmm. And so even some of those scriptures that we need. Are those scriptures really talking about those things? Mm-hmm. Um, do are look at those things in the context? Is that is that is that the application that was intended to move from that? Mm-hmm. Um, and in going off, there's going to be no. The answer is no. That's not that's not what is what is getting at. Um, even those the statements that death, the script of uh, life, death uh, is uh, the power. The what, what is it? The life and power death is in the power. Is, yeah. Right, all that like that's a, it's it's a statement of accountability in Proverbs when that's is mentioned. And the idea is that, um, especially as it's a proverb, and, and Proverbs are um, our principles, not promises. Exactly, they're general principles. The general <laughs> principles, because guess what? Um, um, and the idea from the proverb is say, what is the wisdom from there? That's what I'm supposed to grant from from Proverbs. And proverb, the idea is this: is that we are to be accountable. To this, this idea to what we say, um, um, and that's all throughout the Book of Proverbs. That's all about you know that be careful about um, what we say, but it's not literal. It's not literal that it's in a in a in a and because we know that because nobody nobody. It's interesting that we talk about um, the component of uh, the the life component, whatever you know. We want to you know we want to speak these kind of realities and. Uh, what I found out in many ways, oh, a lot of a lot of the stuff, and I, I don't mean to be pejorative or negative. I just wanted to, sometimes to draw, kind of sometimes where we draw where we drawing our our understandings from. Sometimes, 
um, a lot of a lot of our theology is grounded in religious superstition. Um, and um, and that's just not the way. That's the way. Not the way that that the scripture was intended to be, to be understood. And so, um, yeah, so we have to be careful. We have to be careful about that. And we, one reason why we we talk about it in our book because um, 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 you're right. You're absolutely right. It, it has. It, it it was in other contexts before it even came to to our context. But the thing is, all of these all of these philosophies and religions are purposely trying to use um particularly black millennials frustration with the church to draw them out the, in some cases in frustration with christianity in general and and so it becomes like this impetus for them to get them and often and what we talked about we talked about with a lot of time with the eastern mystics they don't call themselves that what they do what they what they do is they are um they they first of all they 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 call them they they want to um stay away from labels this this is the thing they want they oftentimes want to stay away from labels period um because they don't want to be um known as catering to a certain religion or having certain religious thought and so what they'll do is they'll call themselves um well i'm just spiritual um, that I'm just spiritual, and that, and this is oftentimes how you can um, identify the the Eastern mystics, and so um, so oftentimes what they're doing because they are just consider themselves spiritual, um, um, they can draw from any any kind of thing to kind of build their 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 religion. That's called what that's called is called existentialism. And they are, they are, um, a lot of your, your black Eastern mystics are fundamentally existentialists, which says this, um, existentialists try to stay away from all labels. And the problem with that as if all like total objectivity is, is possible. So don't, don't label me as anything. I don't want any kind of label at all. Um, but the problem is, is that, um, um, so they, so they substitute don't call me um, one label for another. So they say, oh, but I'm just spiritual. And that allows them to build uh, their own um, philosophy without any accountability. Because mm -hmm. see, once, and, and this is part of the problem, because once I, once, if I say, well, this is what you are, then I, there's, a, there's an organized system of framework. They say, okay, well then, well, if you say you believe this, what well, watch this, if I say I'm a Christian, there's certain things I can't believe and still be a Christian. Mm -hmm. But if I if I'm just spiritual, then I can just I'm just totally subjective. One day I believe this, one day I believe that, and it's all it's a, it's a it's a sleight of hand to keep them from being able to for you to call them out on. Well, wait a minute. Well, where's where are you getting your system of belief? And then the problem is this: so you say that you just you're an individual, you just you just spiritual, you're not like anybody else. But the problem is your concept of spirituality looks like a lot of other people who who claim the same label. Mm -hmm. And in this case, um, it's Eastern mysticism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's that's a, a very appropriate uh, way to sum it up. And um, I think that goes back to when we look through all of this. And I want to go back to that point, too, when we were talking about Proverbs being um, 
principles, not promises, uh, because right. that goes back to the point we were talking about earlier, making sure we train people on how to properly interpret the text, not just New Testament, That's not right. just Paul's letters, but right. going back to the Old right. Testament and showing them how to interpret genres. You know, Paul right. Copen has been on a um, podcast before. He has a line that I love that it, I heard in seminary and I've just adopted it. The Bible is not to be taken literally, but literarily, which it simply suggests that I That's need right. to interpret right. scripture based on the literature or the genre that is is there. So if this is a proverb, I need to think about, think through how to properly interpret proverbs. If this is a psalm and poetry, I need to think about how to properly interpret it. Because if I take proverbs literally and ecclesiastes literally and and try to put them there they seem to be fighting against each other you know if i just mm -hmm. if i just take proverbs and they and are. yeah <laughs> so and, there's the they are. And, and you need to understand that because proverbs watch this a proverb is a slice of reality mm -hmm. um it doesn't um so um I, I think one of the greatest illustrations that i've that i've heard about it is if you got four blind men who are uh, reading uh, who are touching an elephant, and then one and one um, blind man grabs the trunk and says an elephant is a lot like a snake. Another mm -hmm. one uh, grabs a leg and says, "Oh, an elephant is a lot like a tree." Are they wrong? No, that's truth, but it's only a slice of reality. So mm -hmm. um, pro proverbs are intended to talk about truths um, as a slice of reality, not for in, it's true that what's true for every single situation. And and know what we understand proverbs even in American culture. Watch this. If you do you do the time, I mean if you do the crime, you'll do the time. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a general principle. Are are there a lot of people who do the crime who don't do the time? Sure it is. Yep. Right? Um so even then hear those proverbs, we're not like, ah, see, oh you you lying or whatever. Like, no, it's it's a it's not a promise, it's a slice of reality, right? And so um, and then we need to understand when you talk about those things, not every word is literal, as you say it. It needs to we need to understand figures of speech mm -hmm. and all the different stuff. Mm -hmm. So um um and because we don't understand it, and we're right, we have not um and I and I'm and I'm I'm putting the finger at myself as a as a pastor. Now I try to do that with my congregation, but in the guild of, of pastors, we not have we haven't always been um faithful in teaching our people and i'm going to say this how to interpret the text because in some cases um and in some cases um we are afraid sometimes that um that we are giving them too much um I, I, you know i've heard so many times um whether it's in preaching most of the time it comes into preaching and teaching and the idea is well, that's that's too much information. The, the people don't want to know that information. The people they can't handle that information. Yes, they can. And if they can't handle it, that's why you that's why you're there. You're the pastor. You're supposed mm -hmm. to teach them and put it in a way that they can. And so what has happened is that in a um, we have been duped into thinking that if I give people this kind of information, they it's gonna be it's like gonna be, they don't be able to handle it. And then what that's not happening. So we don't give them the information, and then some some other folks who are not Christians come and give them an interpretation of scripture, and they're not they're not equipped to deal with it because we didn't think they were they were strong enough to handle it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good ending place uh, for us to end this conversation. I think this has been a very rich conversation, and a lot of people are going to be helped 
buy it. Uh, I want to encourage all of you to get the book, The Round Table. It is on Amazon. He has a copy there. Oh, trying to show it to <laughs> me, but it kind of looks upside down. But yeah. <laughs> We're going to be giving like. some copies. We're going to be giving some graciously. Uh, Tyrone and Rashawn have uh, agreed to donate some copies of the book to Jew3. So at our event at um, at Clark Atlanta, we will be giving away some books to students. So we are really excited about that. Thank you so much, uh, Tyrone. How can people get in contact with you? Yeah, well, I need to get Twitter. I don't have Twitter, but, uh, but I got, I'm got. i on Facebook. Uh, you can just look me up on Facebook, Tyrone. Um, um, we also have a church app um, where you can, um, uh, if you go to your app store, uh, it is the CFMBC Christian Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, and you can stay you can stay abreast of our ministry and sermons and um, some sometimes even Bible studies that, I, that I'm doing on some of these things. Um, and of course, email tyron.laws at gmail.com. T y r a n tyron.laws l a w s at gmail.com. And I, I also heard that. Uh, my friends, uh, Cynthia and Milton Massey, I love those two. Um, they told me that you were actually doing um, training people on how to Hebrew and Greek um, in Chicago, that's inner city Chicago. Yeah, that's correct. I, yeah, I, 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 um, my, my, my master's degree is in Greek and Hebrew exegesis, and um, I'll be continuing that work and, and PhD work. and. Uh, um, the Lord was so gracious to um, give me the opportunity to to go to school and learn this information. I, I feel it's my reasonable act of service. So anybody wants to learn, um, yeah, we we've uh, we've had Greek classes at our school. I've taught at pro bono at some of the Bible colleges, uh, Hebrew and Greek. And so yeah, because my, I, I'm just under the impression um, the people of God need to have as much as possible to be able to uh, be equipped for this fight. So. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you do that in inner city Chicago, I think it's so, so big and so epic um, because you're helping the next generation really know what they believe and why they believe it, which is at the, the crux and the core of the G3 project mission and, and vision. So I am, I'm excited to hear that and, and encouraged by that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, and I'm encouraged by what you're doing. This is, I, I feel like this is a, such a gift um, that you are to the kingdom. And uh, thank you so much. I, oh, this is, I didn't know that something like this was out here. And I, and I, even myself, I tune into some of the podcasts and just really, really enjoy uh, the speakers that you allow to be on there. So thank you so much for this gift to the kingdom. Oh, thank you. That's encouraging. <laughs> well, thank you, you so much. And I encourage you guys to get his book and I know it will be a blessing um, to you. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jew 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play, or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on, in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.